So are we ready for the, the big Super Bowl? All right. Uh, I was listening to the radio last week, and the guy speaking uh, happened to be Jewish, but he was lamenting the fact that uh, it seems like in the U.S. these days, uh, Super Bowl Sunday is a bigger holiday than Easter Sunday. So, so I don't know what that says, but uh, that seems to be where we are. So thanks, Dina, for reading our text for today about drifting away. Seems like maybe we're drifting away from some of the things that matter to us. So last week, we focused on verse 1, Hebrews chapter 2, and this week, we'll look at verses 2 through 4 as we come to the second part of the message titled, Don't Drift Away. Now, before we get to the text, let me remind you that one of the author's main goals throughout this letter is to warn, encourage, strengthen his readers. His readers are these first century Christians, Jewish Christians, so they would not reject their faith in Jesus Christ and return to Judaism. And in chapter 1, he did this by proclaiming the superiority of Christ over all things, including Old Testament prophets and angels. Then in chapter 2, he addresses the problem directly. Let me review what we looked at last week in verse 1. First, we saw the risk of drifting away. Verse 1, therefore, therefore, because of what we saw in chapter 1, because of Christ's superiority to the prophets, to the angels, Christ's superiority to all things, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The author's concern is the risk of drifting away. Drifting away from what they had heard. And what they and we have heard is the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he will call uh, today the message of great salvation. So the danger is drifting away from the true gospel and therefore from the subject of that gospel, Jesus Christ. Now let me remind you of what it means to drift away. The Greek word translated uh, uh, drift away in English is a nautical term in Greek, parario. It describes a ship at sea that's drifted off course, or a ship in the dock that slipped its moorings, it's come loose from the dock and gradually is drifting out to sea. Parario is also used figuratively, for example, to describe something that slips from your mind. So it seems the author is saying that there are currents seeking to pull us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're at risk of drifting into a lesser gospel, uh, a lesser Jesus or no Jesus at all. And so along with the risk, he also gives uh, the remedy for drifting away. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The remedy against drifting away from what we've heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, is to pay much closer attention to it, which makes perfect sense, right? And let me remind you of what it means to pay attention. The Greek word translated pay attention is poresco, and like perio, it is a nautical term. It was used for holding a course uh, or securing an anchor. To avoid drifting off course, we must hold the wheel of the ship steady and or to avoid slipping out 
with the current, we must drop our anchor. So when the author says pay attention, he's not just talking about a a mental exercise. He's also directing his readers to act based on what they're paying attention to. Drifting away happens on its own without much or any effort from from us on our part. But paying attention, staying the course, is quite the opposite. It requires hard work. It requires us to paddle against the current of the world that's seeking to drag us away from the gospel. Therefore, we must pay attention. We must fight the good fight. We must stay the course, drop our anchor, and remain steadfast. We must concentrate and live based on the Word of God. This is the remedy for not drifting away. So in the first verse of Hebrews chapter 2, we saw the risk and the remedy to drifting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the author isn't finished. Uh, He's not finished with this topic. He knows that the current is strong. And to fight against it, his readers need a, a little more encouragement. And so in the next three verses, he gives what I'm calling two uh, oars of encouragement. Oars, you know, the things you row boats with. We're staying nautical here. Two oars that will help us pay attention and paddle against the current, the currents of this world. The first oar is a warning against the results of drifting away. So this is, uh, uh, he's, he's warning his readers. Beginning in verse 2, we read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's the warning. Let's talk about it. Uh, just to understand Uh, Jewish tradition says that the Mosaic law was declared by angels. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. If you want to look that up at some time, I included it in your notes so you could remember it, but we're not going to look at it right now. The point for us is the message declared by angels that the author is speaking of is the Mosaic law, the old covenant. And what the author is doing here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Knowing that his fellow Jewish Christians are in danger of drifting away, he points out that the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant, was reliable, it was valid, it was binding, it was from the Lord, we know, and that every transgression or disobedience, every violation of the law, received just retribution. Put simply, those who violated the Old Testament Law, the Old Covenant, which was spoken by angels, were punished. That's the lesser. Then the writer rhetorically asks, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Given those who violated the lesser Mosaic law declared by angels were justly punished, how shall we escape even greater punishment if we neglect, if we drift away from, that word neglect also means to show disdain for, Such a great salvation, which was spoken and provided for by God's Son. And the answer is, we will not escape. There is no escape. For those who neglect such a great salvation, the result will be great retribution. And again, that just makes sense, right? Just think about what's involved in such a great salvation, in your salvation, First, it originates in the love of God. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And it's culminated in the sacrificial death of that Son, Jesus Christ. Peter writes, He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Jesus gave His life. He took on our sin that we might receive a great salvation. And just ponder some of the benefits for a moment of those, for those who receive this great salvation, this gift from God provided through Jesus Christ. We're forgiven. We're accepted. We're protected. We're strengthened. We're guided by Almighty God. We receive the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, His perfection, His holiness is imputed onto us. And because of that, we escape the wrath of God. We enter into a loving family relationship with Him. We become children of God with free access to His throne. We can now draw near to God. We receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're joint heirs with Jesus in all things, and we spend eternity in, we'll spend eternity in God's presence, about which David writes, "In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." And we could go on, right? The benefits, the joys of our great salvation. What we receive from God through His Son Jesus Christ, who gave His life that we might live, is unquestionably a great salvation. And so, I hope you see that to neglect it, to drift away from it, to show disdain for it, is the height of evil. Maybe a lesser example will help drive this home. Not a true story, I made it up. Okay. Suppose you had a, a you, one of you, had a major debt that you couldn't pay. You come to the end of your rope, and you decide the only thing you can do is rob a bank. But of course, you're caught, you're taken to court, you're tried, and you're convicted. And when it comes time for your sentence, you throw yourself on the mercy of the court. The judge responds with mercy giving you a suspended sentence, no jail time. And then he pulls out his checkbook and writes you a check for the full amount of money you owe. What would you do? What would you say? What if you said to the judge something like, who do you think you are, some rich do-gooder? I'll take your money, but don't expect me to be grateful. I work hard and deserve everything I get. And with that, you turn and walk. You drift away out of the courtroom. How evil, wicked, ungrateful, perverted would you have to be to do such a thing in the face of tremendous mercy? Now magnify that thousands of times and you might understand the evil of neglecting, of showing disdain for, of drifting away from such a great salvation. Evil that will result in unescapable great retribution. How great? Well, in chapter 10, we find a similar, but, but a little more detailed warning. Let me read it, beginning in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So same thing, law of Moses, violate it. 
die without mercy. How much worse punishment, so worse than dying without mercy, do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the foot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Whoa. From this we discover those who violated the law of Moses died without mercy. And for those who reject Christ, show disdain for Christ, the punishment will be worse. It will involve vengeance and the judgment of the Lord. Therefore, be warned, the author says, the the result of neglecting, drifting away from such a great salvation is a fearful thing. Heed this warning and don't drift away. Instead, pay much closer attention to the message you've heard. Pay attention, believe it, understand it, live based on it. Live based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live a life worthy. Live a a life of gratitude for the great salvation you've received. So, we've been told the risk, the remedy, For not drifting away, pay much closer attention to what you've heard. And we've been given, in the form of a warning, one oar of encouragement. Are you encouraged by that? Well, I hope so. You know, we can be encouraged by a lot of things. And in this one, it seems like he's trying to encourage you with a little little kick in the pants, a little fear of a vengeful God for those who neglect the great salvation but we've been, been given this oar to help us paddle against the current of this world. But, but we need another oar, lest we find ourselves in terror paddling in circles. Have you ever tried to paddle a boat and you just paddle one side? What's going to happen? So, I, I was on the, the, what do you call that thing? Yeah, I was on the Kern River once, fell out of that boat, but I'm going much simpler, the the Disney thing, the Tom Sawyer Island, you know, you paddle around that thing and we, you paddle on one side. Well, we had some weak people on one side and the guy in the back kept having to correct for them. So you need an oar, equal oars on both sides. So we got a second one. Along with the tragic results of drifting away, we're given the reason for not drifting away. Speaking of this great salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the author says, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The reason for not drifting away from the message of great salvation is this, it would go against the clear evidence of the truth. And the author gives three witnesses to the truth of this message. Witness one, the Lord Jesus. It was declared at first by the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not some man-made philosophy. Rather, it's a message that comes directly from God's own Son. It's the word of Christ. We saw this in the first verse of this letter. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by His Son. This message from God was not to be neglected because it was spoken by His Son. Jesus declared a great salvation in which He gave Himself as a great sacrifice which provides to those who trust in Him great benefits. Now, how do we know uh, this message of great salvation came directly from the Lord? Well, we could turn to historical evidence regarding the life and teaching of Jesus. But I think the greatest proof that this message comes directly from the Lord, proof that, is, uh, that it's of divine origin, is its total uniqueness. It is unique in all the world. It is unique from all other quote-unquote gospel messages. In every other religion in human history, including pagan religions, tribal religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and even Judaism, when not understood properly, and sometimes in those who call themselves Christians, at the heart of the religion, for a person to receive the benefits their God or God's offers... They must work. They must do something to earn those benefits. If they want a good harvest, or or rain for their crops, or financial success, or a a good spouse, and ultimately if uh, if they want salvation, they must earn it. They must work to secure a place in heaven, in nirvana, in paradise. They must follow the rules. They must obey the commands. They must do the rituals of their religion. For example, in Buddhist Thailand, there's a saying. I've shared this before, but if you haven't heard it, it's good. Uh, the saying goes like this, Tambun Tamba. Anybody know what that means? Christina does. That's about it. Maybe she forgets things. Uh, which roughly translated means if you sin, you must do good works to make up for it. The idea is that your good works must outweigh or at least balance out your bad works, your sin. Mm, Okay, never mind. And if you can, after many uh, reincarnations... Get to the point where your good works overcome your bad and you reach this uh, state of enlightenment, then you'll escape the suffering of this world and enter nirvana or nothingness. And this is just one example. Every religion has different rules and rituals to follow, different ideas about life after death. But they all boil down to what you must do to end up where you want to go after you die. Now, in great contrast to this, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's different. What did Jesus say you must do to receive God's favor and therefore eternal life? No works, no good deeds. No rituals, simply believe. Simply trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. And as we saw last week, uh, Paul expanded on what Jesus said when he wrote, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the heart of the message of great salvation declared in the New Testament. 
And it's the opposite of what every other religion has taught throughout human history. Salvation, eternal life, is not, cannot be earned. It's a free gift given to those who trust in God, who trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for the payment of their sins. And notice, Paul says that even the faith they put in Jesus is a gift from Jesus. The gospel says salvation is not of your own doing. We cannot earn heaven with good works. So, clear? Respond. Crystal, thank you. Now let me say this, just add on to that for clarity, especially after what we talked about last week, if you were here. Uh, In the next verse, Ephesians 2.10, Paul does tell us that good works are essential. Not to our initial salvation, but to our life of faith. When we are saved, we are transformed. We are new creatures in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit, and we now can walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Not to earn our salvation, but to uh, enjoy our relationship with God. So what Jesus did was flip every man-made religion, every so-called gospel on its head. They all said and continue to say, you must do good works to be saved. And that makes sense to us, right? I think it was at Christmas, Advent, we had uh, with the CADs, we hosted some students from India in our home, had a little dinner, talked about the gospel, and sort of this subject sort of came up. And uh, I happened to mention the uniqueness of Christianity in that. And one of the guys said, yeah, you're right. Uh, we believe we have to do good works to earn our salvation, to do our faith. I mean, it's not, this isn't, that's easier to preach, by the way. Hey, guys, if you guys do this, you're good to go and send you off to do stuff. Can't do that. That's not what the gospel is. So Jesus, he flips this on its head. You must do good works to be saved, the world says. And Jesus said, you are saved by grace through faith to do good works. And to me, this says that beyond a doubt, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of grace, great salvation, did not originate with man. We wouldn't think of such a thing. It was declared at first by the Lord. So the first witness to the truth of the message of great salvation is the Lord Jesus. And the second witness, witness two, is the apostles. Not only did it come directly from the Lord, but it was attested to us, the author speaking of himself. We talked about this in the beginning of uh, in our first week of study, how he's including himself in this, meaning he's probably not the Apostle Paul, if you remember, because Paul got his message directly from Jesus. Anyway, that's not his point here. It was attested to us by those who heard. This is speaking of those who heard the message directly from Jesus, specifically the apostles. And one of the greatest proofs, if you, if you, if you want proofs, if you want evidence that attests to the divine origin of the gospel is the witness of the apostles. These men knew for sure whether or not the gospel was true. Peter and John, for instance, were at the open tomb on the morning of the resurrection. They knew whether or not Jesus was really raised from the dead. 
And if you read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, you'll find that at the heart of the apostles' gospel message, right after this, on the heels of the resurrection and Christ's ascension, is a resurrected Jesus. The apostles, to the apostles, Jesus was not uh, some fallen martyr to hold up, to remember, to even emulate. He was the resurrected, ever-present King of glory. He was not a story to reflect on. He was the living Lord and Savior to be trusted, obeyed, honored, and worshipped. In Peter's first sermon, recorded in Acts 2, we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs and God, that God did through him in, the, in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's the Easter message, right? I'm, I'll just do that now. Okay. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the life the ministry, the death, the resurrection, even the ascension of the Lord. Therefore, they knew what was true and what was false regarding the gospel. And they attested to the truth of the gospel, the message of great salvation, declared first by the Lord. Now, some might say, uh, well, what if they made it up? Couldn't they have just made this up? They invented the resurrection, some other things as well. Because they needed Jesus to be alive so they could continue gathering followers, gaining power, starting their own religion. These good Jewish boys were just throwing away everything they had been taught from birth. Maybe they wanted to overthrow Rome and they thought resurrected Jesus would help them do it. The basic idea of some, is that they invented the resurrection, other things about Jesus, for their own benefit. But if you look at the historical evidence within the New Testament and without, this is an extremely hard pill to swallow. Because both Scripture and history tell us that from an earthly perspective, the apostles gained nada, nothing. Well, they, they did gain lives of persecution, poverty, trials, and suffering. But other than that, they received no earthly benefits from holding to and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this clearly, Acts chapter 5. After being threatened and beaten by the Sanhedrin for teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, Acts 5.41 tells us, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. So after re receiving the benefits of threats and beatings, they rejoice in their suffering. Let me ask you this. Would you or anyone rejoice over threats and beatings because of their message? Well, maybe. Maybe, if they believed their message was true, maybe only when they knew their message was not a lie, the apostles 
would have known. And they certainly believed, their lives bear out that they believed the message of the gospel. And they believed it unto death. History records that eventually all the original apostles, except John, were martyred. Killed in one way or another for their faith. Uh, Tradition, Peter crucified upside down, Paul beheaded. They all went to their death, attesting to the message of great salvation that Jesus declared. So the surety and endurance of the apostles' faith is definite evidence of the divine origin and truth of the gospel message. It was first declared by the Lord, then attested to by the apostles. And there's one more witness, witness three, uh, I call to the stand God. No, that's wrong. I can't do that. But that's our third witness. That's the author of Hebrews' third witness. In verse 4 we read, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The grammar indicates that this is speaking of the apostles. It's flowing from what we just saw in the apostles. God, through signs and wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, bore witness to the truth of the gospel message given by the apostles. But it's also true of Jesus. Remember back, it wasn't our point at the time, but it's our point now, uh, what we read in Acts chapter 2. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, How? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. God attested to the truth of Jesus' message, the gospel, with mighty works and wonders and signs. Healing the sick and the lame and the blind, casting out demons, feeding thousands with a few fish and loaves, and even raising the dead. Lazarus, come forth. By these and other miraculous signs, God attested to Jesus of Nazareth. And God did the same thing with the apostles. As these men who'd been appointed by Jesus himself, appointed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, as they began their ministry, the book of Acts records that God gave them gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon them and dwelt them, and through them they performed signs and wonders and various miracles, including healing the sick and lame, casting out demons, and at least once raising the dead. Acts chapter 9, Peter restored a woman named Dorcas to life. So the author of Hebrews is saying, you've all heard about it, maybe even some of you have seen some of these miracles performed by the apostles, Only God can do the miraculous. Therefore, these miracles show that God is with these men. That God is bearing witness to the truth of their message of great salvation. So don't neglect this message. Don't drift away from this message because it's true. It's proven true. It's testified to by three witnesses. The Lord Jesus, the apostles, and God himself. And that's the point the author of Hebrews is making here. But let me make another point, Uh, maybe a side point about miracles and spiritual gifts uh, that I think this passage addresses. I do this because in the church today, when it comes to certain spiritual gifts, and especially the miraculous, things can sometimes be confusing and controversial. 
Now, it's not controversial, in the church at least, in in the Bible-believing church, whether God can and does do miracles. That's a given to those who know and understand and believe what the Bible says. From the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible reveals a God who is above the natural. He is supernatural. He does the miraculous. He enters in. He supersedes the laws of nature. And when he does, we call that a miracle. The problem comes when we talk about God performing miracles through a specific individual or specific individuals. People often ask, I don't know if they off, I've heard it said, why don't we see miracles in our day? like the ones recorded in the Bible? Why don't we see people healing the sick, curing the lame, causing the blind to see? Why no more raising people from the dead? And one common answer is because we don't have enough faith. If we had more faith, we, they, like, like, like they did in the Bible, then God can do more miraculous stuff in and through our lives. Well, first I want you to notice that Hebrews 2.4 says, These signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit were distributed, they were given, they took place according to the will of God. And what that says to me is that if God, if it's God's will to accomplish the miraculous through an individual, God will accomplish the miraculous through an individual. And I'm not saying He can't. So rather than blame some kind of lack of faith for the lack of miracles we see, we might want to consider that it's just possible that God is actually in control and that He might have reasons for not doing the miraculous through individuals, at least in the same way He did through Jesus and the apostles. And again, I'll just, I believe God does the miraculous. I believe he can. I believe he still does. But what could could God's reasons be? Why doesn't he do the miraculous like he did through Jesus, the apostles? Well, I think the answer is found right here in Acts, verses we just read, Acts 2.22, Hebrews 2.4. It's other places as well. We'll just focus here. There we see that the purpose of both the miracles of Jesus and the apostles was for God to bear witness to the message they were preaching, specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. The miracles testified to both the truth, the authority of the message, and it testified to the authority of the miracle worker to proclaim the message. Remember, If you're doing the miraculous, if you just raise somebody from the dead, that says God is behind you. God is working in you. God is with you. And therefore, I better listen to what you have to say. We find this as well in the Old Testament. In the 39 books of the Old Testament, the miracles performed by God through individuals. You know what I mean by that? I mean, there are creation. God did it. The flood. God did it. I mean, God did lots of stuff not through a a person. 
There's lots of miracles throughout the Bible, but what we're talking about here is God accomplishing, doing a miracle through an individual. And in the Old Testament, that's fairly rare. God did miracles. There were sort of times when he did it. God did miracles through Moses and then Joshua. I think Samuel did a thing. And then Elijah and Elisha. Now, if you count dream interpretation, you can add Joseph and Daniel to that list, but that's the list. And the thing to notice in each Old Testament case is the same thing we find in the New Testament with Jesus and the apostles. The miracles God did through Moses were to attest to the message of deliverance to show his authority as the lawgiver and the leader of Israel. And when that authority passed to Joshua, God sort of attested to his leadership through some signs and wonders. And the same is true of the rest. It's it's also interesting to note that there are no recorded miracles performed through other prominent men of the Bible, or women. From Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Aaron, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all the rest, except those mentioned already, the Bible doesn't record any miracles done through these people. Again, miracles are happening, but God is just doing them. My point is that in both the Old and New Testament, miracles that God did through individuals were specifically meant to attest to the message and authority of that individual. That's what we read in Acts about Jesus. That's what we read in Hebrews about the apostles. God also bore witness to the great message of salvation by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now you might be thinking, because I've thought this, when we share the gospel with someone, why doesn't God bear witness to our message and authority through some miracles? That would be great. I mean, people would certainly have to believe what I said if I could whip up a few good healings. I mean, if I could raise someone from the dead, revival would certainly break out, right? Well, actually, that may or may not be the case. Plenty of people saw Jesus and the apostles do miracles who did not believe. But whether uh, they would believe the message of great salvation or not, the point is this message, which was declared first by the Lord Jesus Christ, then attested to by the words and life of the apostles, and finally attested to by God through signs and wonders and various gifts of the Holy Spirit, this message is now recorded for us by the apostles in the New Testament. We have that there. We have it. Therefore, God, I believe, is not performing signs and wonders through individuals to attest to their authority and message. Now, he could be. He could decide at this point in history or in this location that's needed, and I'm okay with that. I'm just talking about why is this not generally happening. Because that authority and message now resides in the Word of God. My authority to preach the gospel is based on the gospel and not me. I only have authority to preach what's in the Bible. Now, if there was a blind guy here, and we all knew he was blind, and I healed him, and he could see, then I, and then I said some new thing, you should probably believe it. I guess, okay? You see my point? 
But that's not what happens. That's not what's happening. And furthermore, as we saw in verse 1 of Hebrews, God's final complete revelation, that's why I wouldn't be saying some new thing, came to us through His Son and is recorded in the New Testament. So I hope that helps you understand a little more about the purpose of miracles and helps to see why the church, churches, at least Bible-believing churches, are filled with pastors and teachers of God's Word and not miracle workers. But as I said, that's really a side point that comes out of the text. The main point is we must pay closer attention to the message we've heard lest we drift away from it. And the reason is because this message is from God. It's divine. It came first through Christ, then through the apostles, and it's verified by signs and wonders and miracles. It's true. And even though the miracles that God did through Jesus and the apostles to attest to the gospel have already taken place, there is a miracle that happens today, I believe, that attests to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A miracle not performed by a man, but a miracle performed by God in the lives of those who hold fast to the message of God's word. It's the miracle of a changed life, a changed heart, a changed mind, changed attitude, changed behaviors. The miracle is a life being changed into the likeness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is the added wonder, if you will, by which God commends His Word to our world today. Christian people living out their faith, not perfectly, but seeking to do God's will according to God's Word. Seeking to live uh, pure, holy, loving lives in a world filled with pride and greed and lust of all kinds. As God does a work in you through His Word, he will use the miracle of your life to commend his message of great salvation to others. I think this is what Jesus was talking about when in the Sermon on the Mount he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The miraculous light of a changed life, a life of love and good works that God has prepared for you, will give authority to the one who's made these changes. It will attest to God's message of great salvation it will cause people, Peter tells us, to ask about the, the hope that's in you. And then you share the gospel, the message of great salvation. And it will, when received by others, this message of great salvation ultimately give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Amen? Okay, so over the past two weeks, I'm summing up here. We've seen that there's a risk of drifting away from the gospel, and we've seen the remedy for that risk. We must pay closer attention to the gospel. We must believe it, focus on it, understand it, live based on it, obey it, trust it, as the Word of God. We've also seen the ultimate result of drifting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that result is retribution greater than what was experienced by those who disobeyed the lesser Mosaic law. And those people died without mercy. So be afraid, be very afraid of drifting away from this message of great salvation. And finally, we've seen the reason for not drifting away from this message. That is because this message of great salvation is true and it's divine It's verified by three witnesses. It was declared by the Lord Jesus himself. It was attested to by the apostles. And it was borne witness to by God through signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And its truth continues to be attested to both by the word of God, I think preeminently by the word of God, and then by the lives of those who've received such a great salvation. And so with these truths... I pray ringing in our ears as we leave this place, maybe heading off to some Super Bowl extravaganza where there will be people who are living in darkness. I charge you as I charge myself once more, do not allow the powerful currents of this world to pull you away from the message you've heard. Instead, commit yourself to pay much closer attention to this message of great salvation in Jesus Christ. Use the oars you've been given to paddle against the current and let the miracle of your transformed life shine a light into the darkness of this world. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, thank you for your word, for this message, for the great salvation you've provided for us, Father. Help us never to neglect it, never to drift from it, never to show disdain for it, but instead to embrace it, to pay attention to it daily, moment by moment, to live based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live based on the fact that Jesus died for us, Jesus gave his life for us, and that we're now children of God eternally destined to be with you forever, to live based on those things, Father, to pay attention to those things, and that as we do, that our our light would shine forth into this world, and people would see your glory and come to know you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen, amen. Stand with us for one long closing song. Just this is a song will remind us of how we're able to